We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and who like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. But more uncertain. Listen, Blue Ivy is six years old. Beyonce is dead. She tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you're black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. That's why you need to take a meeting with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Grub Shakers, the podcast about billionaires. Uh, today, we're going to be taking an extended look at Nelson Rockefeller, the grandson to John D. Rockefeller, the oil magnate that has uh, ruined the world for in more ways than one. Uh, for this episode, I'm joined by my wonderful oil co-hosts, Sean P. McCarthy, Steve Jeffries. And today we are also joined by a special guest, a podcaster from across the pond. Uh, he's one of the co-hosts of Impressions of America, a podcast on modern American history. Please welcome me in joining Toby Alue. Hi, guys. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, Toby gracefully sent us the suggestion of talking about Nelson Rockefeller, and we decided to take him up on it. And, uh, yeah, we're very excited to have him on our show. Um but before we talk about Nelson, I think that we should give our listeners a brief overview of the Rockefeller family and John D. Rockefeller, the original patriarch himself. Yeah, well, it should just be noted that John D. Rockefeller is, by many accounts, the richest American of all time. You know, depending on if you want to ingest it for inflation, people will say he's worth about $400 billion at his peak. At his peak, he controlled 90% of all oil in the United States. Jeez. And that's through through his company, Standard Oil, which in 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, broke up. They ruled that it was uh, in violation of federal antitrust laws, and Standard Oil was broken up into 34 different companies, which included companies that have become ExxonMobil and Chevron, which, you know, remain two of the largest oil companies in the world. So that kind of gives you an idea of the scale of his wealth. And, of course... Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was his grandson. So this is like, it's just that kind of money that just goes on generation to generation and never stops. Yeah, Toby, uh, real quick here, I know you're familiar with our show. What made you think to uh, mention Nelson Rockefeller to us? What about him springs to mind most when it comes to his negligence in the American political system? I think the, the, the central thing about Nelson Rockefeller is I think that in American history, he, he sits in the time where American wealth was used for, I think, more noblesse oblige. Mm -hmm. There was a sense that the robber barons, like his father, John D. Rockefeller, who much of the antitrust and progressive legislation was founded to tackle things like the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Interstate C Commerce Act of 1887. Um, Nelson Rockefeller grew up with a sense because of uh, what had happened to John D. Rockefeller and because of the Great Depression that his wealth meant that he needed to give back to the public in terms of public service, not just philanthropy, but also in terms of uh, politics. Uh, he supported uh, anti-discrimination laws. He supported the Civil Rights Act of 64-65. Mm -hmm. He supported um, free tuition at uh, Cooney University in, um, the, in New York. Right. And there is a sense that following on from another sort of very wealthy 
uh, progeny like um, FDR that Nelson sort of sat in a in a in a moment in American history where rich people were very very terrified of the the, the specter of of communism and socialism, and mm. so what they did is they 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 went into the center and they tried to make sure that that their wealth meant that they had a responsibility to the to the common people. So yeah, I think it's a it's a flash in time, and 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 at it and. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller's life also says a lot about the arc of the Republican Party and how it's changed since that time as well. Hmm. But before we get into Nelson Rockefeller, I did just want to give kind of a 30-second encapsulation of John D. Rockefeller, the the grandfather. Um, We'll probably revisit it in more depth later, but I've been reading this great book called Wealth and Democracy by Kevin Phillips, and he makes the argument that most of the legacy fortunes in America that, you know, go from generation to generation, can be traced back to some sort of wartime procurement, uh, whether it's the Revolutionary War, whether it's the Civil War or World War One. It's just, you know, war breaks out and the U.S. government starts uh, throwing money at anybody who can supply the military or anybody who can do whatever. So there's a lot of money to be made. And, you know, my basic reading on John D. Rockefeller is, of course, he's born in 1839, Um, In 1859, he went into a produce business uh, where he was able to borrow, at the time, $1,000 from his uh, his father. Mm -hmm. So he had a well-to-do father back in 1859. Um, (laughs) they're, They're making good money, but of course, the U.S. Civil War breaks out. You know, they founded in 1859. The U.S. Civil War breaks out, and John D. Rockefeller is rich enough that he's able to uh, hire substitute soldiers to go fight <laughs> to go fight with the Union in his stead. So, of course, he doesn't have to get his limb uh, sawn off in the Civil War. That was a very common practice for Union for wealthy Union households. <laughs> right. Like, uh, He's not an outlier in that regard, but I like some of his justifications for it. Was he just, he was basically like in a startup, and he had to like <laughs> he had to manage his new business. Right. There's there's literally no replacement for him in the business. So yeah, there was too valuable human capital for him to be out there. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know how it goes. But yeah, just like from the from the Wikipedia, apparently in his first and second years, he netted about uh, contemporary seventeen thousand U.S. dollars worth of profit, um, and then their profits soared even more with the outbreak of the American Civil War, when the Union Army called for massive amounts of food and supplies. And you know, you can imagine having a rich father. Like, first of all, just being in the produce business helps when you have a giant standing army to feed. Yeah, of course. But also having a rich father gives you the political connections to get various government contracts and it's basically that just this giant fortune he makes off the civil war allows him to go into creating standard oil and just buying up all these uh oil and uh gas properties you said a thousand dollars in 1859 uh yes that uh for uh, our inflation nerds that is thirty one thousand three hundred fifteen forty two cents today so that is the level of money that uh, he had access to to avoid war to hire supplemental soldiers i mean that's like that is the ultimate rich person move to be like oh i have to go to war what if i could just outsource my allegiance to the country and allow myself to avoid death yeah and it's funny because um john d rockefeller has been framed by many people as a sort of rags to riches figure Mm -hmm. it's almost a a there will be blood figure who (laughs) 
rises, <laughs> uh, doesn't go to, drops out of high school, gets a job as a, you know, as a, as a bookkeeper, and then finds his way into the oil business. But I, and and a lot of people frame it as his father was a little bit of a itinerant, crazy guy. But in truth, he, um, the John D. Rockefeller actually came from money. His father was a businessman. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that I think there's a a theme that runs through and in, in in many ways in many of these kinds of figures is that they 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 generally come from the middle class or the upper middle class but that for for the American dream to really work they have always have to be framed as as un, underdogs. Definitely, I think that uh, one thing I thought before we started this podcast was that. Uh, Bill Gates seems rags to riches only because he became the richest person in the world. But a family that lived in one of the nicest neighborhoods in the uh, area he's from and also being able to afford to send their son to Harvard is by no means a person that uh, is rags to riches whatsoever. Exactly. And just before we go to Nelson, we also note that Jay Rockefeller's money in the old business was made from you know, documented espionage against competitors, price wars, creating fake competitors in order to um, discombobulate some of his competitors, and then also control of the railway and, and, and courtroom evasions. And this was all, this all came out in Ida Tarbell's uh, book, this, this tome about the, the standard oil business which was one of the first great muckraking journalist stories of, of the time and, and really set um, Theodore Roosevelt, who was you know, the patriarch of the Republican Party at the time, against uh, Standard Oil at, at that moment. And uh, Rockefeller was one of the most hated ma- men in America. And you know, he had a passion to not only dominate oil in America, but dominate oil in the whole world. Really, right, and and I and I think there's a sense that once you get to John D. Rockefeller Jr., Jr.'s task really is to try to change the family's image, and yeah. I think that's the context that that Nelson sort of emerges from. Yogi, Steve, wasn't one of you saying that the Rockefeller family goes all the way back to the Mayflower, and with some links to the King or something? Yeah, I looked up uh, the. Um genealogy on the Rockefellers and what I found was that uh, that they were descendants of a Mayflower passenger William Brewster and their family tree includes numerous connections to royalty including a descendant from King Edward the first and to the oh. current royal family through the late Princess Diana so I mean you know we looked at this with uh, Meg Whitman who uh, made her money from eBay and Goldman Sachs uh, a little while ago and even her like family tree runs back 18 tree like, like links generations and you know i don't even know who my grandparents parents were like, like, <laughs> like there's no amount of fucking like oh, i mean i know you know 18 history generations back what they were doing no th- there's no information like that that exists we've cited some research before is this shows it's very uh if two generations prior to you they had they were in had middle class or higher incomes then it's like a strongly positively correlated that you will also have a high income hmm. pretty much regardless i mean if your if your grandparents were rich 100 percent almost you are rich yeah so like came over on the mayflower descended from the king what do you think that's like a nine out of ten self-made score on <laughs> forbes or or does he get the full 10 out of 10 <laughs> 
I think 9.9. I think that point one takes them taken off. They were on a boat that they willingly get got on, you know. That's Kylie Jenner level. <laughs> um, but yeah, we will cover more of the Rockefellers in the future. But um, from some of the research I found, the, you know, the oil empire that Rockefeller had the throne to before the Supreme Court ruled that it must be dismantled in 1911. I mean, like, you know, it it's unheard of. I mean, it, it would be as if, like, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Sony were one company to a certain degree. Like, it just, it, there's no comparable comparison to the level of monopoly that Rockefeller was running at the time. Hmm. Yeah, and it changed America forever, really. It, right. it, America's industrialization came after Britain's, but once it started up, and once you had companies like Standard Oil, who dominated the oil market in the world, America turns from this sort of dream of the, the white man's Jeffersonian dream of tilling his own land and being an individual to these these octopuses, these great monopolies <laughs> that that change American politics forever. I did want to note one more thing about Rockefeller's charity before we move on to Nelson Rockefeller, which is you know the Rockefeller Foundation and also the Carnegie Foundation. Um, they're treated as these great charitable entities, and they did, of course, some charitable works, but both of them were linked to the eugenics movement, both in the United States and in Nazi Germany. Um, it's an interesting thing with John D. Rockefeller. The guy was a real social Darwinist, as uh, many capitalists are, where he thought, you know, if you're poor, it's because you didn't work hard enough, and if you're rich, it's a reward for hard work. Mm -hmm. And so both the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundation um, funded some of the quote-unquote science behind the uh, eugenics uh, sterilization movement in the United States, where a lot of uh, U.S. states would pass laws saying that um, people with low IQs or disabilities had to be forcibly sterilized. Um, and they also, the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundation, would fund uh, similar quote-unquote research in Nazi Germany and fund uh, several scientists who are directly linked to and involved in the Holocaust. Not the yeah, Rockefellers. Much... Sorry, sorry, Toby, go on. <laughs> no, like much of that late 19th century sort of tilt of many of the elites was towards uh, social Darwinism. It, it came out of Herbert Spencer's belief that, you know, the, 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 the strong survive. And, and even um, Nelson Rockefeller's other uh, grandfather on, on his um, maternal side, Aldrich, who was a senator and a millionaire, he also believed in a sort of Darwinian view of, of, of society. And what I think that just before getting into Nelson, I think that the, the change happens in, in American life once you get the, the Sherman Antitrust Act, these interstate acts, um, and Theodore Roosevelt creating government departments to regulate and deal with these, um, these monopolies. And then there's a sense that we, we go from social Darwinism to a new elite sense that it's through these uh, creating these giant departments and, and uh, internalizing a lot of the the monopolies, so so we go towards a more sort of collective view of um, society. And I, I I do think that and and some people will say you know you you had the 1920s, but really between the end of the Wilson administration and then the Roosevelt um, policies of the 1930s, they're they're only like a decade. So really. Um, the the way that Rockefeller lived in the 19th century could not really be replicated in the early 
um, tw 20th century, which is why you have people like Nelson Rockefeller taking a much different path towards uh, being a rich person. Yeah, the quote that is on uh, Wikipedia about uh, social Darwinism for Rockefeller is, the growth of a large business is merely a survival of the fittest, which is uh, the, the worst, like, simple propaganda you can do. Um, and uh, lastly, I will mention that uh, he did start the trend of being born in New York and then dying in Florida. So, you know, fuck <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Toby and I were speaking before we started recording about how, like, he just looks like a fucking ghoul. Like, I mean, for a man that was immortalized probably several times uh, for being the prominent figure he was, his face is just stretched back at, like, the most, like, unrealistic fucking level. Like, almost as if someone put a mask on his face and stretched it back and was like, yeah, yeah, yeah this looks good for the photo I'm taking of you. Horrendous. I, I think in the 19th, uh, no, when he was in his 50s, he started to lose his hair. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he went all bold, and that and that's why he looks so, sort of ghoulish. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, some people said that you know, like physically, he paid for a lot of the the, the crimes that, he, that he's done. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, like we'll cover this on uh, later episodes, but yeah, the the entire Rockefeller family would have uh, tragedy and strife throughout their entire life after the John D. Rockefeller success. But like Toby mentioned, I mean, it is something that could never happen ever again. And uh, Nelson Rockefeller's turn to a more political, idealized way of uh, gaining uh, power in the United States is indicative of uh, what was the change in the United States. Yeah, so the, the, the change in the United States really happens in first through um, Theodore Roosevelt and then the, the, and then the 1912 election, the Progressive Party, and then in the 1930s where you have uh, acts like Glass-Steagall, you have um, the increase in uh, income taxes, uh, marginal top income taxes to 90%, and, you, you know, so, and even... Uh, banks like the the Morgans that have to split commercial banking from investment banking so things really change and you just can't have these kinds of you can't make this kind of money anymore but part of it is because of the Great Depression and then there's also the fear emerging in Europe of the, the specter of communism and a lot of wealthy people a lot of people in American government and a lot of people who've inherited uh, wealth are really, really scared of communism. So you, you end up with people like Nelson Rockefeller, who grows up, you know, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. makes sure that they spend a lot of money on philanthropy, during Rockefeller Center, the MoMA Art Gallery. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller is really interested in bringing modernist art, art to New York. They bring Cezanne, Matisse, mm -hmm. uh, Pollock, um, and they, they sort of uh, try to really do a lot of pu public service. And Nelson Rockefeller ends up working in government for Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the war as a head of uh, secretary for Latin Af Affairs. And in, in his position as secretary in Latin Affairs, he actually does a lot of work with Argentinian fascists in order to stem this, the spread of communism. And in fact, the, uh, Nelson Rockefeller is the reason why the world has Henry Kissinger, because oh. Nelson Rockefeller found him. 
you know, he 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 was a little bit uh, shy. He, you know, he wasn't really like Rockefeller, but Rockefeller sort of brought him into his orbit. Rockefeller was very interested in young experts, and the the nuclear strategy of um, of Henry Kissinger that's been immortalized in 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 movies um, was really brought to the world by uh, Nelson Ro- Rockefeller. But I think mm. the essential thing to know about Ro- Nelson Rockefeller and the essential thing that connects him to the Republican Party is that after Roosevelt, the Republican Party was sh- shit scared. They thought they would never, ever get back into power. They, they had this guy, Robert Taft, who was the son of uh, the Taft who had been president in the 1910s, and he was a conservative stalwart. He was like any, you know, he was like Rand Paul. He was basically, you know, a normal conservative um, talking, you know, th- about um, sort of retracting the New Deal. But what essentially happened is that, that they couldn't really win with someone like Robert Taft, so they had to get people like Wendell Wilkie, who were much more northeastern, had... Uh, policies that supported the New Deal and then you had um, people like Thomas Dewey he came from New York who was also basically a moderate Republican so it, it's almost like what happened with the Democrats after the, the 1980s where they, they just knew they couldn't win anymore so they had to move to the center the Republican Party never stopped being a conservative party it just had it just had an electoral map strategy that meant that its um, candidates had to be moderates, and that's mm. why the the Nelson Rockefeller comes to dominate part of the, the Republican Party, and it's also why Eisenhower basically is a moderate. He carries on many of the um, Keynesian countercyclical policies of the of the 1950s and 1940s, and the liberal Republicans come to dominate the the Republican Party. So, giving us Henry Kissinger, another uh, charitable Rockefeller act we can thank them for. <laughs> That's crazy that that uh, Kissinger is linked to the Rockefellers. Like I, I wouldn't have put that together on my own. But of course, a man of just the utmost destruction that uh, Kissinger is was connected to the most amount of money that an America has ever put together in his own life. Uh, so we'll continue with what Toby was talking about with uh, the conservative right uh, becoming more central uh, in. Uh, well, when would this be, Toby? This would be like the 1950s? Um, yeah, so in the 1950s, the Republicans were much more centrist. Um, there wasn't you know, a massive extension of uh, civil rights legislation or, or welfare programs, but there was a, a sense that they were not attacking those programs. Right. And Eisenhower did um, help uh, the, bring the National Guard and, and to help, help in civil rights struggles. In, in a number of places, actually, Nixon's platform in 1960 was ve- was actually quite progressive on on civil rights. Much of that had to do with the influence of Nelson Rockefeller. Nixon actually uh, he he had the the nomination shored up. Rockefeller had some support. Nixon was running as a as a moderate. Uh, he he had a, a control of the establishment. And Rockefeller begins to see, even as early as 1960, when he goes to Dallas, that many people who are conservatives do not like him. You know, they, they see him as a member of the Eastern establishment. Um, many young conservatives are becoming much more conservative than they were in the 1940s and 1950s, than they were allowed to be. It's really only 
Democrats in Dallas that that, that like him, and and he and he he starts to see that the Republican Party is turning. But Nixon doesn't recognize this, so Nixon does go to Rockefeller for some advice on what the platform should be. Hmm. And there is a push for increased civil rights legislation. There is a push for working to preserve the the welfare programs and social security programs. But on the other side, Rockefeller was much more hawkish than Eisenhower was. In fact, the Eisenhower speech about you know having a military control, the military industrial complex speech, a lot of that was was um, inspired by a pushback against Rockefeller. The Rockefeller brothers wanted, they thought that they had a missile gap with the Soviet Union and they hated the Soviet Union. Like Rockefeller hated the Soviet Union, he hated communism. And he, he wanted to make sure that that the America was was had more missiles than the Soviet Union, and so Eisenhower pushed back against that. But in the end, that kind of rhetoric got into uh, Nixon's platform. So you had a mix, and which is which is really where Rockefeller was between more you know civil rights and more social programs, but also with the, uh, increased military spending in the 1960 program. And then in, in New York, Rockefeller does bring in a lot of anti-discrimination laws. There's a lot of work on um, increasing spending for education, mm-hmm. increase free tuition at the, at the state universities, increasing the New York university system. And, and so he is, in many ways, a liberal of that period and more progressive than even politicians in the Democratic Party like Jimmy Carter and um, Bill Clinton and even Barack Obama to something, if you actually look at his record domestically. Yeah, it does make me angry that you're describing a man who's more liberal and less hawkish than the Democratic nominee for president today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and I think, but once you get to 1960, things are changing. Um, I mean... Uh, Rockefeller, uh, JFK thought that he was going to run against uh, Rockefeller, but when Rockefeller's uh, marriage ended, um, there was a lot of negative press about his divorce and remarriage, and so uh, JFK thought he was going to run against Goldwater, who he thought he could beat all ends up, but then JFK dies, and Lyndon Johnson becomes the president. Mm-hmm. But still, you have this dynamic where it's Rockefeller who's leading the liberal Republicans, the last, really, really the last remnants of the liberal Republicans, and then Goldwater, who's leading this new conservative wave. And Rockefeller and Goldwater are quite interesting because Goldwater, it was not from you know a, a billionaire background. He, he he was a sort of small business owner type, and he represented a sort of emerging class or lower middle class people who kind of liked anti-communism McCarthy they liked the anti-communism of Nixon and they did not like the northeastern establishment of money and they didn't really like the northeastern noblesse oblige they were much more um, you know like cowboys they they felt that they were self-made and Mm -hmm. people should have personal responsibility and work hard and they kind of they kind of hated Nelson Rockefeller and they go up against each other, and Goldwater beats him, and Goldwater gets about thirty-two percent, and Nelson gets, you know, in the in the twenties, and a lot of it is because of the this, the great skill of F. Clifton White, but a lot of it is also because of very very crazed groups like the John Birch Society, 
who just go around and canvas areas like it's a, like conservatism is this big religion. And at the RNC convention, Rocky goes up, um, you know, just to give a concession speech and to talk about, you know, the the the, the coming campaign against Lyndon Johnson, and the 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 Goldwater people are like, you know, uh, they're talking about we want Goldwater, we want Goldwater, uh, and they can and Rockefeller and it's drowning out Rockefeller, and Rockefeller looks really pissed off. <laughs> And so he makes this long speech about extremism in the conservative party and in the conservative movement at that time. And then Goldwater gets onto the podium, especially because Rockefeller wanted Goldwater to denounce a lot of extremists. And Rockefeller in the campaign saw Goldwater as extremist because Goldwater was talking about making Social Security voluntary. He was talking about increasing or getting out of the UN. He was talking about, you know, increasing military arms to untold um, amounts. And Rockefeller wanted Goldwater to denounce um, this kind of extremism. And then Goldwater goes on the podium and he says that extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice. So he was Mm. basically doubling down on this kind of extremism. And really, like, this is a really important moment in Republican history because the liberal Republicans would never get that close again. It was it was in many ways that the, the, the torch had been passed intellectually and culturally. A lot of the Northeastern Republicans that Nelson Rockefeller came to be emblematic of, uh, a lot of them were sort of wealthier and uh, well-to-do, upper middle class, and uh, they they were losing power in the in the conservative movement William F. Buckley and this new group of conservatives you know people like Ayn Rand Goldwater which were coming to power and I think that's a it's a sort of essential uh, moment in in the history of the Republican Party and then you when you go to 68 Rockefeller loses again to Richard Nixon and again but this time it isn't necessarily the economics it's Nixon's law and order plea and right. it's also like part of the Southern strategy. Nixon didn't win the Deep South, but he won the border states in the South. And um, he was able to run again on law and order against Lyndon Johnson's sort of failure to keep order. There was a lot of riots and uh, there was the Vietnam War. And But Nixon steals Kissinger from Rockefeller, hmm. which is how the, the Kissinger-Nixon partnership comes up now in terms of uh, Nixon's foreign policy you know the 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 attacks on Cambodia the bombings of Laos all of that was endorsed by Rockefeller Rockefeller thought that you needed this kind of powerful um, and and it was it's, it's it's kind of different from the foreign policy that the Bushes had which is more neoconservative um, Kissinger saw foreign policy from from really from a a more sort of uh, battle of nations type strategic uh, foreign policy that was really Machiavellian and at its core really amoral. It was not like a utopian vision of foreign policy that um, that the Bushes would have and the, the neoconservatives would have. But it was the foreign policy that Rockefeller thought was best to deal with the threat of communism. And he pushed uh, Vietnam very hard at that time. So you have this mixture in, in Rockefeller's life between someone who is very rich and, and, and feels a sense of 
public service and uh, you know he supports all these welfare programs and then someone who on the foreign policy end is very very hawkish and is probably complicit in many of the, the great crimes of Kissinger and, and the Nixon administration. Yeah, and we should just mention that uh, he was the governor of New York from uh, 59 to 73, and then eventually he would springboard from that into the vice presidency. Yeah, so he was the governor of New York for about uh, 1959, 73, as you said, and uh, he defeated Avril Harriman. He really did it because on that level... He could spend more. He spent about four hundred million to become the governor of New York. He spent much more uh, <laughs> money than, than than anyone else at the time. But his uh, New York administration was an administration that spent a lot of money on you know on education. It, it invested in uh, public parks, especially with uh, Robert Moses, who was the the head of the parks administration at the time. They created well the freeway system, subways. Mm. They really did a lot of work trying to help the incoming African Americans who were coming from the South, and many of them poor. A lot of work on housing, um, a lot of work expanding Medicare. Once Medicare was set up in um, under Lyndon Johnson, into people who did not have access to care before. A lot of work on investing in social security. So it was. I mean, New York, people need to really look at New York in the, the 60s and 70s. Like it, it was almost a, a little socialist state that, that, was, that was being being created by, by uh, Rockefeller and, and, and um, the, 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 the mayors at that time, especially mayors like uh, John, John Lindsay. And so, yeah, in, on the municipal level as governor, especially at that time, he was seen as someone who was very well liked. He was uh, re-elected uh, very easily. He, he won handily in his first election by five hundred thousand votes. I mean, he was he was a well liked and um, well respected. Yeah, I'm not even being sarcastic when I say all of those people became Democrats. <laughs> like, yeah. Did- the Rockefeller Republicans are just Democrats now. Right. The, yeah, the Rockefeller. Yeah, exactly. The Rockefeller Republicans. Now, if you look at the the their foreign policy, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton talked about you know meeting Kissinger, for example. Like it's it's not like Kissinger was like he wasn't a neoconservative. He wasn't a conservative. <laughs> right, really. right. Like and the and I think the Democrats, the modern Democrats, are a little bit different because the modern Dem- Democrats. They didn't have the New Deal. They sort of had the defeats that they faced um, under Reagan in uh, 80 and then really 84 when, you know, the, the Mondale was defeated handily. And uh, I think it's, it's the same thing in England, really. In 83, the Labour Party was def- was crushed. So basically the, the Democrats had to become sort of pseudo-Republicans. It was really what happened to the Republicans and the and the Conservative Party in England in the 1930s, you know, when when the they had to move to the center. So um, the Democrats had to move to the right, basically. Right. And the, so the difference really between Rockefeller Republicans and the Democrats is the Democrats are further right on economics. They, you know, t- they d- absorbed a lot of the more neoliberal view of economic policy, um, things like uh, monetarism, from move away from a fiscal 
fiscally concerned and generous policy to more sort of managing the economy mm. um, using monetary policy. And so, and so basically, yeah, the, the, the and it, it's like, um, you know, Barack Obama has been called a Rockefeller Republican before. He, and he is, he is a Rockefeller Republican. And Rockefeller himself was not someone who believed sort of handily in the Goldwater personal responsibility or we should get out of the UN or, you know, things like that. He was, he, he was, a, he was an internationalist uh, liberal politician, basically. Now, going back to what you were mentioning about Nelson in the uh, Vietnam War, do you think that the push for uh, war efforts was somehow linked to the fact that, you know, I don't know exactly how the shakeup of uh, uh, the standard oil uh, becoming Exxon and Chevron would become, but the oil interests for the Rockefeller family, do you think that influenced uh, Nelson's decisions to push the war? Hmm. You know, I'm I'm not sure on, on that point. I would say that he was ideologically attached to um, dealing with any kinds of, of of communism in that region, and he I mean he was very very close to 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 to, to Kissinger, for example. In terms of the the Rockefeller, I think that 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 side side of the business was handled by people like. John um, Rockefeller III, who was uh, sort of passed over as the, f the first son in many ways, and then people like David Rockefeller, who was at uh, sort of Chase Man Manhattan. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sh completely sure if the, the Standard Oil influence spurred Rockefeller in, 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 in Vietnam. Well, what I would say, and I think it's interesting where these the Rockefeller family and, you know, kind of similarly the Kennedy family, these are wealthy families that have scions who go into, quote unquote, public service and have a sense of public service. But certainly with the Rockefellers, there's definitely a conflict of interest there because, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, uh, Nelson Rockefeller had uh, copper interests in Chile. He had uh, he was linked to mining interests in Brazil. And of course, U.S. foreign policy would um, intervene and uh, have some coups in those two countries. But also just more generally, I think if you have an international business portfolio and you have a bunch of resource wealth in um, third world countries, if socialists or communist governments come to power in those countries and start seizing uh, the, your resource wealth, um, then people might get the idea in other countries, you know, the kind of domino theory. So I could see how I'm sure he has plenty of it had plenty of ideological justifications in his in his own head, but kind of probably his anti-communism uh, would have been at least partially linked to his own pocketbook and his own fear of I make a lot of money having kind of pliable strong men in the third world to give me fair business deals, and it wouldn't be wouldn't be good for me if uh, people started nationalizing those things. Yeah, m most definitely, and, and and Nelson had worked partially with Standard Oil. Um, he ha he had also worked at Chase Manhattan, for example. Like he 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 always kept the family interests in mind and I think it, in his work when he was working for Roosevelt in Latin America that he did work with fascists yeah, in in order to stem the, the communist threats I mean um, and he did work with the CIA developing 
close relations with uh, many um, prominent Latin American politicians mm. and increasingly advocating for military dictatorships. Toby, how do you feel about like comparing Rockefeller Republicanism that we already went through to like sort of there's a few remnants of them in the Republican Party, you know, who occasionally who occasionally can exert some influence still? Yeah, I think um, when you compare Rockefeller Republicanism to Mikowski, Collins, and McCain, I think Mikowski, Collins, and McCain all pro- all on the state level have some reasons for being more uh, centrist th- than um, other Republicans. But I, I do think that Rockefeller Republicanism, ideologically, if you were to compare it to uh, the contemporary time, is much more liberalism and mm. I, I never really saw John McCain as a a liberal really he was someone who liked to be described as a maverick um, I mean when he ran in his campaign with uh, Sarah Palin there wasn't a push for you know um, more generous social security and uh, Medicare and Medicaid yeah, it, it was you know, it was lighter language. It was uh, being nicer. It was the hope of bipartisanship. Yeah, I think. But then, to 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 also get to your point, if someone like H. W. Bush, because H. W. Bush was also a conservative, but in, when H. W. Bush ran against Ronald Reagan in uh, 1980, he talked about how Ronald Reagan's um, economic views were voodoo economics, right? If H.W. Bush had been president in 1972, H.W. Bush is very similar to uh, Nelson Rockefeller. He was fr- he was a scion of a rich family. Uh, his father was a senator. He had fought, you know, again this the sense of noblesse oblige in public service. He fought in the in World War Two as a fire pilot, and he had moderate views on economics, but quite hawkish views on on foreign policy. He he was he was head of the CIA. So the context is super different. By the late 1980s, the Reagan revolution happened, the Reaganomics happened. So he's a conser- he's super conservative. And that's why McCain and, and uh, Mikowski and Collins would be fairly conservative. But in the 1972, if they had been president, they would have been more moderate. And I think you could see this with Mitt Romney as well. George Romney, his father, was a liberal Republican. In 1968, he ran as a liberal Republican, uh, uh, Rockefeller saw him who, who as a stocking horse, but George Romney was kind of stupid. He he went to Vietnam and said that the generals had uh, hypnotized him into thinking something different, and then his campaign just ended. But um, George Romney was a liberal. He was a liberal Republican, and, and and Mitt Romney when he was in Massachusetts, he had a something similar to Obamacare. So he, there there is a the the link there is the context. Like once these people come out of their state based context and into the national scene, they have to become conservatives because there is there is no liberal republicanism for them to, to join to or, or to be a part of. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel. It's like I think Mitt Romney might be a bit closer of a representation than Murkowski or Susan Collins or McCain was. And yet still when he got to the national stage, I think he's a senator now, um you you don't hear any more about Romney care, that's for sure. And um, or any of his other kind of redistributive policies as a governor. 
Yeah, and it's a, it's a super really good point because supposed liberal Republicans, people like David Frum, they adored Romney because they saw what he did in Massachusetts, but they couldn't do anything, you know, on the, on the national stage. They would have to, you know, um, come out with policies that Newt Gingrich liked or... Mm-hmm. Policies the you know, the 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 Heritage Foundation liked or the Hoover Foundation and and the the, the Cokes it it, it wasn't it, it, that 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 moment of liberal republicanism it just doesn't there's just no place for it really. If I had to guess as to why, I would say it's because they're getting slotted into the new the then new economic paradigm of neoliberalism in the late seventies that took off. Mm-hmm. And so, exactly. like that, the, that sort of cultural language of redistribution didn't have anywhere to live, basically, in that economic framework. Exactly, it fe- affected the Democrats and the Republicans. And yeah, you can see parties. this in the nineteen seventy-six and the nineteen seventy-three. Once Nixon, I mean, Nixon was a moderate Republican. If you look at the EPA, if you look at his work. Um, on on affirmative action, if if you look at the, the the fiscal policies the institute, obviously the context was he had a democratic uh, senate and house, but he was he was a moderate Republican. He'd always been a mod- moderate Republican. Nixon goes in in seventy three. You have Gerald Ford who brings Rockefeller in as his um, vice president. But once you get to seventy six, Rockefeller has to go off the ticket because the Southern uh, Republicans, they don't like Rockefeller. They don't trust him. They haven't trusted him since '64, right. and so you have to get someone like Bob Dole, who's much more of this new kind of Republican in in the tradition of Goldwater, in the tradition of Reagan, and and that that Rockefeller Republicanism, which really like it was a defensive move. Obviously, some people like Rockefeller really believed it, and this you know this nobleese pledge. They really did believe it, but it was a defensive move by the party because the mm. party could not win elections in the 40s and 50s running as a conservative party. It was a conservative yeah. party in the 1920s, but it, it couldn't be a conservative party anymore. Yeah. And and that's why Rob, 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 Rockefeller Republicanism existed, and that's why by 76, you know, it, it ended, and you have Cheney and Rumsfeld and Ford, who who was a conservative himself, and then finally Reagan taking off, mm-hmm. and then Jimmy Carter, who who wasn't even on the left, he was he, he was very good on foreign policy, but he was in the center, because Robert Rockefeller Republicanism just didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to discuss these political figures and look at them and how they are more mixed than uh, we previously believed. Um, you know, from the. From the way we look at the past, it does seem that some people are so one way or another, or at least how the, that's how they're framed for popular media today. And I think that also exaggerates why modern day uh, liberals and conservatives seem to be so beholden to the beliefs of the past because it's framed as if like, no, no, a fucking Reagan was right all the way over. And, and same with uh, many other figures when the reality is that they have more bipartisanship than uh, than currently. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's super true. I think a lot of politicians, if you look at Pelosi and Schumer, they live in constant fear of of nineteen eighty four because they experienced it. Mm-hmm. They you know they had they ran Mondale, who was a you know was a liberal. He was well loved by the the by the the labor element in the you know led by Walter Ruther in the Democratic Party, but he was completely destroyed because. 
the political demography and sociology just meant that that kind of politics just people weren't interested in any anymore at that time but people like that have lived and lived today in 2020 like it is the 80s it isn't you know things have changed Mm -hmm. but the the, just like the republicans feared uh, fdr the, the the Democrats have feared that Reagan revolution and feared those numbers in in eighty four and eighty eight and eighty for for a whole generation and and it it's really skewed the party to the to the to the right. Mm. Yeah, I did want to mention. Um, so there's a book about Rockefeller uh, called The Imperial Rockefeller by Joseph Persico. Um, it was written, I think, nineteen eighty two. I found a UPI write up of it. And uh, it mostly makes the allegation that while Nelson Rockefeller was Gerald Ford's uh, vice president from 1974 to 77, he was basically left with not much to do. Like he ended up cut out of most important decisions. Like there was a big tax cut that was announced that he wasn't even consulted on beforehand. Uh, But I did like from this UPI write up, apparently uh, Nelson Rockefeller dreamed up a scheme but never made it public to have the United States buy Greenland because it was becoming an economic strain on Denmark. And I just love that it's like, you know, of course, this is Donald Trump comes up with this again and he's treated like the stupidest person on earth. But, you know, genius Nelson Rockefeller also hatched this one up in the 70s. Um. But yeah, like I did want to also mention an, one of the most interesting things, I think the most interesting thing that Rockefeller does while he's vice president is chair the Rockefeller Commission on the CIA in 1975. And this is, there's this very rare and, uh, you know, never happened again window in U.S. politics where Congress actually starts investigating the CIA in the 1970s. And mm-hmm. um, the Rockefeller Commission, I think, is... Even a mainstream, you know, doesn't accept the double Oswald's conspiracy theory <laughs> uh, historian will tell you that the Rockefeller Commission was a limited hangout. I think Gerald Ford in his memoir said something to the effect of all this bad information about the CIA was coming out and I didn't want to damage it operationally. So we set up the commission to try to limit limit the damage. So essentially, Ro- Nelson Rockefeller chairs this commission on the CIA and it's mostly a whitewash. Um, I actually found an article from Howard Zinn, of course, the author of uh, People's History of the United States. He wrote an article back in 1975 that I think is very uh, prescient, where, you know, in 1975, the Rockefeller Commission releases its one report on the CIA, and the New York Times headline at the time is, quote, Rockefeller Inquiry Clears CIA of Major Violations, unquote. Um, And... Howard Zinn points out this is kind of a conflict of interest to have Nelson Rockefeller investigating the CIA, both for his own uh, ties to the CIA, but for his business interests. Um, He talks about Salvador Allende, of course, the CIA overthrew in uh, Chile. The CIA Mm -hmm. even paid to uh, uh, carry out the assassination of the um, leader of the military in Chile who didn't want to go along with the coup. Um, And I'm quoting from Howard Zinn here. American corporations don't like Salvador Allende because he stood for nationalization of Anaconda Copper and other businesses. Anaconda Copper owed a quarter of a billion dollars to a group of banks led by Chase Manhattan, whose chairman is David Rockefeller, Nelson's brother. And then he continues... 
but the circle is still not closed. The CIA action to overthrow Allende was approved by the 40 committee, whose chairman is Henry Kissinger, and it was Kissinger who recommended that Rockefeller head the commission to investigate the CIA. And there's also allegations at various points that Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, was paying money to Henry Kissinger. So you can just see where it's like, okay, Henry Kissinger overthrows Allende, and then he appoints Nelson Rockefeller to chair the commission investigating the CIA. And apparently the report also skipped over the entire Operation Phoenix program, which was a CIA assassination program that has admitted to murdering in cold blood over 20,000 Vietnamese civilians executed without trial from 1967 to 71. Um, So there's just like a whole bunch of stuff in this report that's just completely left out. And uh, it's, it's pretty blatant the reason why that was done. You know, in this time period, there also is a Epstein connection I found today, and this is with uh, David Rockefeller, Nelson's brother, from uh, this report I found. It's been said that David Rockefeller was one of Epstein's first clients in 1982. Rockefeller would have retired, just retired from being CEO at Chase Bank at that time. So Epstein was uh, part of the Trilateral Commission. So the Trilateral Commission was founded by David Rockefeller, uh, the brother to Nelson in 73, and he was also served as the CFR chairman, as well as Epstein being on the board of the Rockefeller Institute. So during the 70s in this time, there is a minor Epstein connection to the Rockefeller wealth. But yeah, just so this episode can be used in classrooms, we will not go too far into the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> We're going to hide our power levels on the Rockefellers. <laughs> yeah, and I would just have to say that um, as you've just gone into, like Rockefeller was always connected to the the CIA. He was, I mean, he he worked with a guy named uh, William Cameron Townsend, who was a founder of an ultra conservative group called the Wycliffe Bible, and they worked in Latin America to unseat a lot of um, communists uh, leaders to install uh, military dictators. The, Dwight Eisenhower's work, uh, uh, you know, thinking about pushing back against the military-industrial complex, pushing against the CIA. Much of it was spurred by his antagonism to people like Rockefeller, uh, and you know, Rockefeller pushed almost all of the the anti-communist uh, wars. Um, we see Rockefeller gathering political power and building a vast business empire in Latin America, working with the CIA, developing close friendship with famous. Latin American politicians and businessmen and increasingly advocating military dictatorships with uh, many ultra-conservatives that supported him. So which is the real connection between Rockefeller and um, much of the you know, sort of conservative movement um, in, in foreign policy in, in American life. So yeah, on that level, and, and it's really the same with, with H.W. Bush. Like H.W. Bush was a, a moderate Republican and you know, somewhat close to Rockefeller in terms of ideology, but it's it's on the level of anti-communism where that conservatism really comes out in these kinds of figures, especially, I think, because it was a window in time where they could not, were, you know, like um, conspicuous consumption and rapacious wealth was less looked up upon in American life than it had been because of the New Deal and what the New Deal meant for domestic politics. 
Yeah, and there's no way to look at the history of the CIA without noticing this kind of hand-in-glove relationship with big business, um, the large American fortunes. You know, um, I believe there are allegations that uh, Rockefeller companies have been used as CIA fronts, have been used to help gather information for CIA purposes. And then, of course, you know, we mentioned Allende in Chile and the business interests that, you know, I'm sure motivated the CIA to help overthrow that government there. But I did also just want to mention the case of Brazil, um, just from SpartacusEducational.com. Um, in 1964, uh, one of Rockefeller Nelson Rockefeller's law firm's most important clients was uh, M. A. Hanna Mining Company, and um, uh, a guy named uh, João Goulart had become president of Brazil in 1961, and he began to talk about nationalizing the iron ore industry. So the CIA began making plans for his overthrow. Apparently, a psychological warfare program was approved by Henry Kissinger. Um, uh, at around this time, and in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson gave the go-ahead for the overthrow of uh, Zhao Goulart, uh, which is codenamed Operation Brother Sam. So again, you know, you just kind of circle back again and again. There's no way this guy should be chairing a committee investigating the CIA, and it ultimately was not successful at heading it, heading this off because later on the Church Committee would be set up. Um, later in the 70s, which was remains to this point the most thorough investigation ever attempted of the CIA. But it should be noted, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier, that the entire reason the Rockefeller Commission came to be needed was uh, the journalist Seymour Hersh was at the New York Times at this time, and in 1974 he broke the story that the CIA had been experimenting on U.S. citizens without their knowledge or consent um, under Sidney Gottlieb, um, and, you know, what's become known as the MK Ultra program, mm -hmm. uh, they were, among other things, dosing people with LSD, again, without their knowledge or consent. So there's this kind of what, public What, it's wrong fear. to be cool, Sean? It's wrong <laughs> to have a party, bro? <laughs> Come on, man. What do you think that goes down at Skull of Bones at Harvard, man? They're just trying to have fun, bro. <laughs> I do like, you know, dosing people with LSD without their consent, originally tried by the CIA and then refined by the Legion of Skanks podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny all those um skull and bones clubs especially in the 1940s and f and, and 1930s mm -hmm. they were just fronts for c cia mm. um sort of internships you know william f buckley was in the cia uh, on one of those things as well then they were just they always took took from the sort of like the best families all these rich families for for young cia operatives at that time mm. get them while they're dumb and young in addition to, like, the Zinn stuff, apparently there were documents declassified in 2016, just according to uh, nsarchive.gwu.edu. Um, these documents declassified in 2016 showed that uh, not only had Dick Cheney, as part of his role in the, um, uh, the Gerald Ford White House, he had selectively redacted documents to show to the Rockefeller Commission uh, that were based on the coup the CIA had done in Guatemala in the 1950s. Not only that, but apparently uh, Dick Cheney and the Ford White House removed an entire 86-page section on CIA assassination plots. <laughs> um, and there were plenty of—apparently you can even see that the uh, Dick Cheney's handwriting is in the marginal notes oh, really? of these, these 86 pages that were removed. So he just kind of went through with, you know, a black pen, a Sharpie, and crossed out everything. So they just dumped a whole bunch— 
out of this report, even though it was itself kind of a whitewash and a limited hangout. Wow. I can't believe Dick Cheney would be so cruel. And, and so just to finish up on uh, Rockefeller, because towards the end of his political career, especially as governor in New York, he becomes more conservative, especially after Nixon's law and order victory in 68, which really sets the conservatives up as the, the law and order and anti-crime party. And Rockefeller feeds, feels that if he's ever going to have ambitions of becoming president, he needs to become more conservative. He doesn't really become more conservative fiscally because he believes in a lot of the social programs. But what he does are things like the Rockefeller drug laws in 1973, which really instigated mandatory life sentences without the possibility of plea bargaining or parole for all drug users and dealers oh, yeah. and those convicted of drug-related violent crimes. And a $1,000 reward for uh, people who bring in uh, drug dealers and which which really hurt a lot like it wasn't just about the 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 drug pushes anymore people who were taking drugs recu- recreationally right. were going to prison for this mm. and it really really violently you know led to high levels of um african american inmates in in new york prisons it it really ravaged that community in new york and then the other thing was the Attica prison riots. Right. So, uh, and I think p- if people have seen the film Dog Day Afternoon, you have uh, Al Pacino saying, Attica, Attica, Attica. You know, New York's crime increases in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And fiscally, the, the, the city is dealing with a lot of problems. And within all of that, you have the Attica prison riots where prisoners sort of capture guards and they want Rockefeller to come in and talk to them mm-hmm. and negotiate with them and because Rockefeller feels the pressure of the conservatives and he's also getting a little bit more conservative on law and order he has the National Guard go in and they shoot loads of people 39 people died in the assault right hmm. so this pressure from the conservative party is turning a sort of nominally liberal governor into this almost uh, this like on the level of law and order very conservative and very uh, unempathetic when it comes to uh, drugs and and, and, and criminal justice and and much of that pain as as in New York is is just sort of gone through for many generations and affected many many people and then by 1975 when Rockefeller is vice president New York has its uh, fiscal crisis where it Mm. can't pay its uh, debts to many of the bankers who had been you know, so creating because um, it was constructing all these loans for, for New York and, and New York had been meeting these loans but because uh, a lot so, so because of some of the work Rockefeller did because of some of the work Robert Moses had done in creating the New York um, sort of transit system and, and uh, a lot of white families are leaving the city into New York State and they're not getting taxes from those people anymore. They're getting taxes from more disadvantaged people in general. And then when New York has this big issue, Rockefeller, their man, the governor, is in the White House. And so New York goes to Gerald Ford seeking assistance. But, Ford, but Rockefeller tells Ford that 
um, no, we can't have um, the the government helping New York. Obviously, Rumsfeld and Cheney didn't want to help New York at all, but that was the governor of New York who had been governor for for decades, and he didn't want to help New York. So New York, you know, there's that big story. New York dropped dropped dead, mm-hmm. and now New York can't pay its debts. Right. And for for a generation, you have conservative government in New York under uh, in the, the mayoralty and in the government level which ultimately leads to Giuliani so the pressures on Rockefeller from the conservative movement the, the growing conservatism and his own strategic positioning means that he becomes more conservative and he causes some things that have really damaged the city in my opinion yeah, and I think your thesis is pretty good where it's, you know, when the, when the guy Nelson Rockefeller is born and comes of age, it is a time where socialist and communist movements and labor unions are representing a real threat to capital. But as mm-hmm. he's getting older and approaching the 70s, you know, the labor unions are in retreat. We have uh, inflation. We have kind of a situation where capital recognizes that it has the advantage now and this kind of Nelson Rockefeller republicanism is no longer necessary. That that's that's exactly it. It's the same thing in England. You know, you go away from sort of Manchester style economics, which was very social Darwinist, and um, there wasn't a lot of social programs or you know cheap and poor laws. But in the forties and fifties, you you instead of those kinds of leaders, you get people like Churchill and Macmillan, who are basically like. They're, they're like Rockefeller. There's no bleeze oblige. Mm-hmm. They're they're great warriors, you know. They're they're fighting communism and fa- and fascism, mm. but in their own countries, the domestic policy is, is 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 nice and it's 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 social democracy. It isn't until those pressures no longer exist that those kinds of people sort of age out, and then you get conservatives coming back into power. One thing I wanted to mention about the uh, Attica prison riot is apparently uh, afterwards, you know, 80 people being wounded, uh, 39 people dying in the assault. Uh, in a telephone call with President Nixon, Rockefeller would explain the deaths by saying, that's life. You know, that classic Frank Sinatra hit, that's life. 80 people wounded, <laughs> 40 people dead, basically. Well, what are you going to do? But um, just devoid of empathy and uh, reasonable leadership that should have been taken place by him according to the recent book poisoner in chief about Sidney gottlieb by uh, stephen kinzer apparently william coby the then director of the cia had been very frank with the rockefeller commission about cia assassination plots and uh, he had actually informed the, uh, the commission that, quote, the CIA had conducted LSD experiments that resulted in deaths, unquote. And then re- when referring to the assassination plots, Nelson Rockefeller attempting to prevent the CIA director from revealing too much buttonholed le- Colby later, quoting, Bill, do you really have to present all this material to us, unquote? <laughs> so Nelson Rockefeller was actually asking the director of the CIA to give them less information so that they could be a more effective uh, limited hangout. One last rant about the Rockefeller Commission. Uh, so some of the members of it included Ronald Reagan, uh, Lyman Lemnitzer, who was the absolutely psychotic chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1960 to 1962. This is the guy who wanted to start a nuclear war over Cuba <laughs> during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and it also included um, a guy named David W. Bellin, who was the former counsel to the Warren Commission. And I just wanted to quote 
from the Rockefeller Commission. Quote, numerous allegations have been made that the CIA participated in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The commission staff investigated these allegations. On the basis of the staff's investigation, the commission concluded that there was no credible evidence of any CIA involvement. <laughs> Unquote. So I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I'm convinced. When you tell me those kinds of heavy hitters looked into this stuff, there's no more questions unanswered there. Well, we want to uh, thank our uh, guest, uh, Toby Alue. Uh, before we run out here, Toby, uh, how about in uh, 30 seconds you tell us everything we need to know about uh, Preeti Patel? If you could do that real quick, that'd be great. <laughs> well, I think Preeti Patel is sexy as shit. Yeah, she's, I'm she's like, hot. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Preeti Patel is interesting because I, I, I recently was working um, for conservative for for the London mayoralty uh, Roy Stewart and I, I feel like a lot of conservatives don't really like her mm-hmm. and um, she, she she has really bad PR in my opinion she always cut like on the the newspapers that we get of her it's always her doing her doing something almost unspeakably mean to 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 minority groups and and vulnerable people always i don't i i just don't understand like on some level we have politicians who are just as bad as her mm-hmm. legislatively i mean like, just look at johnson and um a number of other people in in in, in the government who who are worse than she is but her pr is so poor like it's just I mean, as a as someone who's you know worked in that sphere before, it's just it for me. It's just irritating professionally. It's like, how is she, she failing on this level constantly? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the smirk. I think that conservatives that are bigots, but just conservatives in general, just see her be satisfied with her misdeeds and are just like, I know she's on our side, but I don't trust her. It's it's like <laughs> exactly it doesn't make any sense. It but. should just be noted in terms of the ends of Rockefeller's life. Uh, he dies in 79. Apparently around the time of his death, the family was close to the Shah of Iran and Henry Kissinger had been talking to Rockefeller about, uh, you know, of course the Shah of Iran had to flee because of the Iranian revolution. Mm-hmm. Nelson Rockefeller had said that he would put the Shah of Iran up in his mansion, but then oh. he died. R- Nelson did. Huh. And according to his biographer, Joseph Perseco, um, um, when Nelson Rockefeller died, he was in his Manhattan townhouse in the company of a young woman aide, Megan Marshak. Mm-hmm. The official account said that the, <laughs> the official account said that they were working on an art book, Rockefeller's last project. <laughs> and then, uh, quoting from uh, Joseph Perseco, uh, there is no way that Nelson Rockefeller was working at ten o'clock on a Friday night in his office. <laughs> so uh, he had a lot of he had a lot of female fans throughout his life. You know, he had to leave his first wife because of it. Married happy, but still, it's just, you know, he's he still he was you know he just I mean he was a rich guy who was governor and stuff. I mean. Did you guys read about how his son was eaten? No. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, looking for for art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nelson's son. <laughs> and there's uh, a do- there's a documentary about it. Right, and he like, if the Dutch hadn't shot at this group in I think it's New Guinea maybe, um, then he would the his son may still be alive. But they they uh, yeah that dude was eaten to death. That's so funny because when you yeah. say he was eaten, it's like well that 
uh, results in a dozen other questions on my part. <laughs> like, <laughs> was he eaten by a crocodile? Was he eaten by a tiger? Yeah, I mean, the Rockefeller family had various companies in order to get primitive art out of a number of countries, Japan, New Guinea, mm-hmm. and uh, Ro- uh, Nelson's son went over the, the, you know, on a primitive art exposition as, you know, normal people do, apparently. Mm. And um, yeah, he was he was he was eaten, and Nelson went over there. They couldn't find him, and he just you know he he had to come back. It was one of the great tragedies in in in, in um, Nelson's life. Yeah, yeah. I did want to note for any of our listeners who find themselves in New York, you can actually visit the Rockefeller Mansion mm-hmm. in uh, Kaikut. Uh, Mount Pleasant, New York. It's just a short train ride from New York City. My wife and I actually went up there. Um, but you can see like the the television that Nelson Rockefeller would would watch football games on. And you can go to the basement and see his art collection. It's got a bunch of Warhols and um, a bunch of items that his son was eaten in order to acquire. <laughs> um, it's a pretty pretty nice tour if you uh, if you find yourself in New York. I recommend it. Listen, if Michael Rockefeller wasn't eaten by people in New Guinea as revenge for what the Dutch government did, we might have another Kissinger. You just never know. You know, I just think that the New Guinea population should be thanked for the amount of nuclear wars we've avoided because of their handiwork. I mean, it's it's super true because once the Rockefeller, the Nelson Rockefeller generation sort of died, you just had like people i mean in, in the 1980s like you you see polls of um young people like you know they they said in polls that they wanted to be rich mm-hmm. a lot a lot of people under the age of uh 35 voted for ronald reagan and so like rich people did they they you know they changed and you know they the the that rockefeller generation was just no longer there so someone like michael rockefeller who you know was like his his father. I mean, Nelson had been uh, director at, Mo- at the Museum of Modern Art, which his his mother founded. He could very well have become a you know a a, a very difficult uh, Reagan conservative very very easily. Unfortunately, he was dinner instead. <laughs> yeah, he became a nutritious meal. <laughs> We were fucking laughing at cannibalism. What is this social social Darwinism? Are you? <laughs> yeah, this is survival of the fittest in action. It's what he would have wanted. Well, uh, we want to thank our special guest uh, Toby Lue. Uh, check out uh, the podcast he hosts, uh, Impressions of America, a podcast on modern American history. Uh, Toby, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and with that, I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm, I'm Steve Jeffries. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for joining us. Check us out on Patreon. And thank you to our guest. Uh, Thanks, guys. Uh, Really enjoyed being here. Wonderful. All right. Stop your recorders, guys. Did you have it? Did you get all your plugs in, Toby? We can give you another second if you need. Um, You guys talked about the Impressions of America podcast. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, we... I mean, we have, we have a lot of um, sort of similar guests. Uh, Matt Christmas for Chapo Trap House did an episode with us on the weather underground a year ago. Um, uh, people from QAnon Anonymous that took, came to talk about the extremist groups in the 60s. John Birch Society episodes on uh, sort of detailing the changes in American politics between the 1960s and today. 
uh, and yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a great sh show that we've we've been able to to do. It's a real privilege to do with a lot of interesting guests, and yeah, we we we'd love uh, to have some of you guys listen to us as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, so me. your family has always been so private and so under the radar. They have always chosen to speak through their philanthropy. What is it like to have this much exposure? and to have people paying so much for your family's stuff? Well, I think there's a time for private life, and then there's a time for public life and to step forward. And this was really my grandparents' vision. And so it's an amazing time, and it's so exciting to see the public's you know, reception and appreciation of this uh, incredible sale. And Christie's has done just an amazing job curating it and you know protecting my, our family's privacy but putting it out to the public in just a spectacular way. Now everyone's wondering well what does the family think about especially the younger generations that so much stuff is being sold off didn't they want mm -hmm. that stuff all the family members including yourself were allowed to choose some items of your grandfather David Rockefeller's mm -hmm. up to a million dollars what did you choose? <laughs> Well, I was uh, very happy to keep a beautiful bracelet that my grandfather had picked out for my grandmother. And uh, I was happy to wear it to the Met Gala on Monday and honor my family's uh, you know, legacy and tradition and uh, to be able to keep that sentimental piece, among uh, some other things. And uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful to see my grandfather's vision come to life for the collection. And you are an equestrian athlete, very, you know, have won so many events. You also have your own design company. You're very entrepreneurial. Do you think some of your great-great-grandfather's entrepreneurial genes have been passed down to you? I think so. You know, there's such a, um, a value of having a, a work ethic in my family and of working at working hard at whatever it is we choose to do and focus on. So. I definitely try and honor that, and I love to work hard, and uh, I'm excited to have founded my own business and uh, to carry on in my grandparents' tradition. Carry on in my grandparents' tradition. Carry on in my grandparents' tradition. 